How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this evening and this opportunity to study your word. Your word clarifies our thinking, helps us to understand who we are as your creatures, and defines what our basic problem is, that it is not a social problem or an economic problem. It's not a problem of intelligence or experience. It is a problem that relates to spiritual issues based on the fact that we are born sinners and in rebellion against you. You have provided a perfect salvation for us, and as we continue to study it, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. We see this in Christ, say this in Christ's name. Amen. We began our study of salvation three weeks ago. This is our fourth lesson, and we began by asking several questions we hope to answer in the course of this study. The first question had to do with what salvation is. When we saw that salvation comes in three stages. We have phase one, salvation. We are saved or justified at the point of faith alone in Christ alone. At that instant that we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved, past tense. But the scriptures also teach that we are being saved. We are being saved today. We were being saved yesterday. We are being saved tomorrow. That is the ongoing process of sanctification, also called salvation. Third stage, phase three, is salvation from the uh, presence of sin that occurs at death, physical death, when we're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Now, the second question that we asked, having understood that salvation comes in three stages and it's important to distinguish in various passages which salvation is being talked about, we then ask the question, why does God save man? And we saw that God saves man because man was created in God's image and likeness, and man was designed to fulfill a particular function or role over the creation. And once man disobeyed God, he became constitutionally uh, marred. He lost or the image of God wasn't lost, it was distorted. But he had a, still had a soul, he still had self-consciousness, mentality, volition, and conscience, but he no longer had a human spirit, so God had to resolve that problem. Now, it may seem simple in terms of uh, gospel presentations, what salvation is and what takes place at salvation, but when we break down all of the complexities of the sin problem, we began to realize that salvation is something that is uh, much more complex than one could uh, first imagine. Remember, it took almost 4,000 years of human history before the human race was at that perfect point 
where God could send the second person of the Trinity to be the Savior to die on the cross. So there were 4,000 years of preparation. And then once that took place, there was even the hint of the possibility that things might go wrong in some way in the Gospels, for Jesus had made sure that the disciples brought swords with him when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane to make sure nothing happened that prevented him from going to the going to the cross and dying there as our substitute. Well, last time what we did was we went through the the diagram of the barrier. We started in Ephesians 2, 11 and following, which outlines the fact that man is at enmity with God and that there is a barrier, a sin barrier that exists between God and man. So tonight we want to look at the grace solution. Now here we have the problem. The problem is that the instant that Adam sinned, the instant that he put uh, that fruit in his mouth, the human race fell. He is or was our representative. And at the instant that he sinned, there was a sin barrier erected between man and God. But that sin barrier is comprised of different elements. The first element is the fact of sin itself. Man it becomes has a constitutional defect. He is marred constitutionally in his very makeup. He is marred. He doesn't lose the image of God. It is distorted. He becomes a sinner. As a sinner, he cannot please God. It is impossible for him to please God. It is impossible for him to have a relationship with God because he cannot measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. So the first problem is the fact that man is a sinner, and as a sinner, he comes under uh, the judgment of God, and the perfect righteousness of God has to judge man. Second, there is a penalty of sin. Now, we want to distinguish between the fact of the penalty and the reality of the penalty. The fact of the penalty is that because man has violated God's righteousness, God's judgment has to judge man. That is the fact of a penalty. We will see the reality of the penalty under the category of spiritual death. That is the reality of the penalty. The fact of the penalty means that man does not measure up to God's righteousness. Therefore, what the righteousness of God rejects, the judgment of God must judge. The third problem is the character of God. God's perfect righteousness must be satisfied before man can bless, uh, before God can bless man. God's righteous standard must be met and his justice satisfied. Remember, what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. When the righteousness of God is violated, then the justice of God must condemn. When the righteousness of God approves, then the justice of God can bless. So God's righteousness and justice must be satisfied before God can save mankind. The fourth brick in the barrier is spiritual death, the application of the penalty. Man is spiritually dead. This has to do with the constitutional defect. He is missing those immaterial elements in his soul, which make our, in his immaterial being, the immaterial human spirit, which enables his soul to have a relationship with God. So minus a human spirit, man cannot understand the things of God, and man cannot have a relationship with God. This indicates that spiritual death also has a physical dimension, and that physical dimension is that at the instant of sin, man acquired a sin nature. Now, that sin nature is not an immaterial 
uh, characteristic, but it is something that affects the very corporal being of man. It affects his body, his mortal body. That's why it is referred to in the New Testament as the flesh and this body of sin, so that the loss of the human spirit has something that goes along with it, and that is the introduction of a sin nature. And that sin nature uh, is embedded in the very genetic structure of fallen man because he is constitutionally uh, flawed because of this sin nature. So he has the reality of the penalty, which is spiritual death, He is minus R. That means the best that man can do falls far short of God's perfect righteousness. No matter how good man is, his best righteousness is called filthy rags. Filthy rags righteousness can never measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. And then finally, the sixth element in the barrier is position in Adam. We are all born in Adam, and Scripture says in Adam all die because he was our federal head and our federal representative when we, when he died, we died. Now God provides a perfect solution in the cross. And that perfect solution takes place through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ called the substitutionary atonement, which is the first doctrine that we're going to look at this evening related to the grace solution. In order to solve the overall problem of sin, It was necessary for there to be a substitute. God's righteousness and justice demanded satisfaction. A penalty had to be paid, and so there had to be a substitute. When it comes to understanding the the overall nature of the the teaching of the Scripture, we realize that, that three doctrines are foundational to deal with the sin problem. That is the first the first problem. Uh, of the barrier, and that is unlimited atonement that is substitutionary. So we will look at three doctrines, three doctrines that relate to this sin problem. First of all, the problem of uh, the doctrine of atonement. Secondly, the doctrine of substitution. And then third, the doctrine of unlimited atonement. It is these three elements that make up the doctrine of unlimited atonement which solves the sin problem. So point number one, atonement is not a word that is used in the New Testament at all to describe the work of Christ. It is a word that derives from the Old Testament and was used to describe the overall nature of Christ's work. Atonement is an Old Testament concept and is used as a summary term for all that was accomplished on the cross. So in order to understand atonement, point number two, we have to go to the Old Testament imagery. The background for the concept of atonement is Old Testament imagery from the Day of Atonement when the high priest of Israel entered into the Holy of Holies and placed the blood of an unblemished lamb on the mercy seat of the Holy, uh, in the Holy of Holies on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant to symbolize or picture the perfect future work of the Messiah. So we have the picture here of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable or mobile, the mobile sanctuary for the dwelling of God in the Old Testament. Now, if you look at the, at the picture here, 
you see the entry in your lower left. You enter into the courtyard, and the first thing that you would see is the brazen altar. The second thing is the uh, labor that was for the washing of the priests. And on the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement only, once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter into the sanctuary of the tabernacle, the building that is centered in the middle of the courtyard. He would go into the holy place, and then he would go beyond the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Inside the holy of holies was one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. Inside the box were three things, Aaron's rod that budded, the Ten Commandments, and some manna. They each represented some sin in the history of Israel. Over that was a lid that was called the mercy seat. Two cherubs were placed on top of that lid, symbolizing God's perfect righteousness and his perfect justice. The high priest would place between these two cherubs the bowl containing blood from a sacrificed unblemished lamb, and as they looked down upon that, they were satisfied. So this whole picture here is called as a picture of atonement. The elements of the atonement are are several. There's obviously substitution and also propitiation, which we will study. But the basic concept of atonement is from a Hebrew word that uh, traditionally has been understood as meaning to cover, but recent scholarship indicates that the primary meaning uh, is more closely related to the concept of cleansing or purifying. So what we've seen so far under the doctrine of atonement is, number one, atonement is not a word that is used in the New Testament to describe the work of Christ. It is a theological word derived from the Old Testament and used to describe the overall nature of Christ's work. It is a summary term, therefore, but it is a term that accurately portrays the solution to the first brick, which is the sin problem. Second point is the imagery comes from the Old Testament Day of Atonement, which emphasizes uh, cleansing for and for sin. Third point, the sacrifice itself, the sacrifice of that lamb without spot or blemish, reflects two crucial ideas. The first is substitution. That lamb is, is a substitute for the entire nation. And secondly, it indicates the payment of a penalty. There is a death for the nation, the death of that innocent, spotless lamb. Two crucial ideas. There is a substitution, and there is the payment of a penalty. Fourth point, the image of the lamb without spot or blemish emphasizes and foreshadowed the sinlessness or impeccability of the Messiah that the Messiah himself would be sinless, he would be without spot or blemish, he would not violate the law, and therefore he would be qualified to go to the cross to die as our substitute. I have five points related to, or three points related to, the understanding of the nature of the Passover lamb. Subpoint A, under the main point four, the Passover lamb was a substitute for the entire family. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 3, 
We read, speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. So this lamb represented, it was a substitute for everyone in the house. Second point related to the lamb is that it is innocent. It is guiltless and untainted by sin. The reason they took it on the 10th and didn't sacrifice it till the 14th of the month is to give them an opportunity to observe it to make sure that it was sinless. We had a chance to observe the life of Christ, not only during his years of ministry, but also during his years preceding that. There were those in his family who observed him, and to observe that he was sinless. He was without spot or blemish. Exodus 12, verse 5, emphasizes this. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 picks up on this idea. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So the Passover lamb is innocent and guiltless and therefore untainted by sin is a picture of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. Third, the lamb is a picture of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was indicated by the announcement of John the Baptist who saw Jesus come to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Point number five. The blood from the lamb was symbolic and represented uh, the death of the future Messiah and portrayed his future death. In like manner, the physical death or blood of Christ, the blood of the lamb portrays the future blood of Christ. But the blood of Christ, the physical blood of Christ itself is an analogous representation and it pictures the substitutionary spiritual death of Christ on the cross, that when he died for sin, he died spiritually because the penalty for sin is spiritual death, and therefore the penalty that the substitute must pay must be in kind and was also spiritual death. Sixth point, the blood of the lamb was placed over the ark containing the symbols or representatives of Israel's sin. In that case, it is a covering, but its purpose for the covering was to purify or cleanse. This is why when the Jews translated the Hebrew Old Testament in most of these passages in Exodus, they used the Greek word katharizo to translate kafar. Kafar is the Hebrew word for atonement, but it was translated katharizo by the Jews indicating cleansing or purification. So that seems to be the basic idea of atonement is a cleansing of the basic sin problem. Point number seven, and this is an important point to understand the analogy. Just as the lamb at the Passover protected everyone in the house, whether saved or not, the entire, and it also protected everyone in the nation, whether saved or not, or the Day of Atonement was for everyone in the nation, whether saved or not. The death of Christ is for all, though not all believe. Let me go over that again. 
you could have a situation where you might have 10 or 15 people in an extended family. Maybe you didn't even have family members in the house. Maybe they, your next-door neighbor came over, and he's inside the house. And the house has the blood painted on the doorpost, as was uh, commanded by God at the time of the Exodus. Each family was to slaughter the lamb, take the blood from the lamb, and paint it on the doorpost, on the, on the lintel and on the top of the door. That would signify that those in the house were covered by the substitution of the lamb. But not everybody in the house may have even agreed with that. There may have been some dissension there. There may have been uh, some in the house that said, well, we don't want to do this. This is a silly thing to do. But the head of the house, the father, would say, no, this is what we're going to do. So it indicates that the blood covered even those who were not saved. This is important as a, an understanding of the doctrine of unlimited atonement. The same thing was true when the priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. That atoning sacrifice was for the entire nation. It did not have, uh, it did not necessarily save anyone, but it certainly represented or, or it was a substitute for everyone in the nation, whether they were believers or not. And then point number eight is one I've already alluded to, and that is that atonement, the word itself, comes from the Hebrew word kafar, which means to to cleanse or to purify. And so this solves the first problem in the brick, that atonement solves the core sin problem, that cleansing of the sin problem takes place at the cross. That brings us to the next, to the next doctrine, the doctrine of substitution. Substitution means that someone replaced man, someone filled in for man, someone took man's punishment as a surrogate, a stand-in, or an alternate. Substitution means that one person does something so that another person does not have to do that. Uh, perhaps it might be that if uh, you could not pay your taxes in, in April, then some friend or family member may pay them for you. They may, instead of just loaning you the money, they may actually just write the check and pay your taxes for you. That means you don't have to pay those taxes again. That's what substitution means. And we'll come back to the significance of that uh, before we finalize this point because it becomes very important to understand whether the substitutionary death of Christ was real or was it potential or simply hypothetical, as some people think? Well, a more antiquated term that was sometimes used to describe the atonement is the word vicarious. Vicarious comes from the Latin word uh, vicarious, which means one in place of another. Christ's death is vicarious because he is the substitute who bears the punishment due sinners. He takes our place. He took his our punishment upon himself. Our sin was imputed to him in such a way as he bore our punishment as our representative. Just as Adam was our representative and in his decision to sin, we all sinned, so Jesus Christ is our representative and he takes on our punishment on the cross. It is a real substitution. This is the doctrine that is pictured in the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Now, this is important to understand 
that the doctrines uh, that that doctrines must be taught and must be understood in concrete images and God teaches them to man that way in the Old Testament. These aren't just abstract ideas, but God teaches them in concrete form to help us understand them and to comprehend them. And the concept was seen in the Old Testament year after year when that lamb without spot or blemish was brought into into the tabernacle and was sacrificed and the blood put on the uh, Ark of the Covenant as a substitute for the nation. Now, two Greek prepositions are used to denote substitution. The first is the word huper, H-U-P-E-R, and the second is the word anti, A-N-T-I. Two Greek prepositions are used to denote substitution. That's important to understand this. Point number three relates to the second of these words, anti. Anti means in place of. It means instead of. It is used 22 times in the New Testament. Now, many times it's used just in a secular context of substitution. For example, Matthew 2:22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Anti means that Archelaus ruled in the place of or instead of his father Herod. So there is a real substitution taking place there. Matthew 17:27 But lest we give them offense go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth you will find a stater take that and give it to them for you and me Now this is an economic substitution it has to do with the payment of a of a tax and so Jesus told Peter to go down to the sea just to throw in a hook and the first fish that came along would have this coin in its mouth And he says, take that and give that as a tax for you in our place, for you and for me. So it is a real payment. It was not something that was that was just hypothetical or potential based upon their accepting of it. Then Luke 11.11. In discussing the grace of God, Jesus says, Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? And that word translated instead of is anti, indicating substitution. So it clearly means substitution in a secular context where one thing, one person, takes the place of someone else so that that other person or thing does not have to take the task or be responsible for some tax payment. Now, the word is also used in two passages where it relates to the work of Christ on the cross. These passages are parallel to one another in the two different Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Matthew 20, 28 reads, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, that word ransom is a word that is going to relate to substitutionary redemption. The word for ransom has to do with uh, redemption, and so there we see that the redemptive aspect of Christ on the cross is also substitutionary. Gave his life a ransom for anti for many. Find the same statement in Mark ten forty five, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for anti 
a ransom for many. So those two verses, once again, are Matthew uh, 20, 28 and Mark 10, 45. Now, the second preposition, the one that is used much more often in the New Testament, is hooper. Ante was used 22 times in the New Testament, but hooper is used 150 times in the Greek New Testament. And it's used in passages such as Luke 22:19, When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Hooper plus the genitive indicates substitution. Do this in remembrance of me. It is the preposition that gives the force of the, of the concept of substitution. Hooper, when it is used with a genitive, always indicates substitution. John 13, 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Substitution. Hooper. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly as a substitute for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died as a substitute for us. See, this is one of my little pet peeves. Since it's so clear the word means substitution, one would hope that a translator of the Bible would translate it with this substitutionary idea that in the place of or as a substitute for is much more clear than the simple preposition for, even though in English for is a, sub, is a preposition of substitution. It should be clear, not, not just such a general statement, but translators are usually afraid to do anything that, that indicates a specific theological position. Then we have Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Who pair, once again, for us all, as a substitute for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for, as a substitute for, our sins according to the Scriptures. <coughs> For the love of Second uh, Corinthians five fourteen and fifteen, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died as a substitute for all, therefore all died. Second Corinthians five fifteen, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. In Second Corinthians five twenty one, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf as our substitute that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, in Galatians 1.4, who gave himself as a substitute for our sins, who pair, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. And then Ephesians 5.25 gives us an application. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself as a substitute for her. So husbands are to give themselves sacrificially in their leadership role as husbands for, as a substitute for, their wives. And they are to lead not in some sort of arrogant manner where they are being abusive or where they are being demanding or where they're forcing their wife to do something, asserting their authority. Once a man has to talk about his authority, he's lost it because he hasn't established it by by character uh, indicated by integrity. 
You serve, you, you lead by service. That's a principle of Scripture. It's based on humility following the example of Christ who was willing to sacrifice his own place in heaven, come to earth, give up, go through years of suffering, living among sinners, and then going to the cross and bearing the penalty of sin in himself on the cross. He experienced excruciating pain because of his love for the church. So that is the model and example for husbands. There is no excuse for a husband to ever be abusive. There is no excuse for a husband to be verbally abusive. There is no excuse for a husband to be physically abusive to a wife. Once a husband gets to that point, he has basically lost it, and he is demonstrating that he doesn't understand grace, he doesn't understand humility, and he doesn't understand leadership. Hebrews 2.9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It is substitutionary. He died as a substitute for everyone. And then 1 Peter 3:18, For Christ also died for, that is, as a substitute for sins, once for all, the just for, who pair, the just as a substitute for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Now, all of those verses are just a few of the many, many verses in the Scriptures that indicate that the nature of the atonement was substitutionary. However, it has not been uh, a doctrine that has been understood throughout the history of the church. In fact, the early church was very confused on the nature of the atonement. Up to the first century or two, there was sort of a vague use of substitutionary terminology, but it wasn't uh, explained clearly and wasn't thought about very precisely. Then, in order to understand the atonement in approximately 200 A.D., you had the first church father by the name of Origen originated a view called the Ransom to Satan view. Origen's dates were 184 to 254 A.D., uh, Origen was, uh, did many good things for the church in his life because of some of the work he did in preserving the text and providing copies of the text, but he had some dangerous theology. He came up with an allegorical system of interpretation. He came up with the ransom to Satan view of the atonement and various other doctrines that were false and developed serious problems for the church during the Middle Ages. Origen developed the view of ransom to Satan, and it was a view that was also held by Augustine in the early church and was very influential in, in theology during the Middle Ages. It was the idea that Satan held the human race captive and that Christ had to die in order to pay a ransom price to Satan in order to free the human race. The problem with this, it's not God's righteousness that's violated, and... Uh, the pro- no, excuse me. The problem is that it's God's righteousness that's violated by sin. It's not Satan that is uh, violated. Payment had to be made to satisfy divine judgment, not to satisfy something on Satan's part. Satan does not hold man captive. He is a captive of his own sin nature. The, another problem with this view is that it also makes Satan the benefactor of Christ's death, and it has too high a view of Satan or his power. So the ransom to Satan was one of the first attempts to explain the view of the atonement, the nature of the atonement, and it was false. The next view came very close to the truth. It was advocated by uh, Anselm. 
Anselm's dates are 1033 to 1109. Anselm was uh, one of the more profound theologians, and he also served with uh, served under uh, Charlemagne. His view is sometimes called the commercial view, but it comes very close to a substitutionary idea. He first explained it in his great work on the uh, nature of the God-man called Cur Deus Homo. This view stated that God was robbed of the honor due him because of sin. Therefore, his honor needed to be restored either through punishing someone or through receiving a payment. So this comes very close to the satisfaction or idea or the substitutionary idea, but it just is, hasn't focused it well just yet. In reaction to that view, you have another, uh, another medieval theologian by the name of Abelard, whose dates were 1079 to 1142, so he uh, overlapped the last part of uh, Anselm's life. And Abelard was quite an interesting character. He had some ideas that weren't accepted by the medieval church. And at one time when he was young, he had a love affair with a young woman by the name of uh, Eloise. And uh, her brothers did not take to a priest. Uh, having affections for their sister. So since he was supposed to be uh, celibate, they decided they would fix things physically so that he would have to be celibate. So they took him out uh, one afternoon with a knife, and they made sure that he would uh, never uh, have problems with women again. So that was Abelard, but he was quite intelligent, quite a genius, came up with a lot of ideas, many of which were heretical. And one of his ideas was that the atonement was was moral influence. That's the nature of the atonement, was simply to show the moral standard of God. Abelard's view has often been picked up by later uh, modern liberal theologians and is often a view that is found in liberal mainline Protestant denominations. This view rejects all ideas of substitution and payment for sin. This view teaches that through the death of Christ, God demonstrated his love for humanity so that man's heart would be softened and people would turn to God. As people looked at the cross, they would see uh, God's standard satisfied by Jesus and all that God had done for them, and then they would want to turn to God. And it, it views man as being not quite depraved either, has problems with understanding the, the sinfulness of man. The basic problem with the moral influence view is that first it exalts God's love and it ignores his righteous standard. It also ignores scripture and the prepositions in scripture that emphasize substitution. Then the fourth view in the ancient, or actually came forward during the time of the Reformation is the example view of the atonement, which was advocated by Socinius. And it was also picked up by most modern Unitarians and many liberal Protestants. Now, many liberal Protestants either take the moral influence view or the example view, and they can be very similar. They may just kind of try to blend them together. So if you come out of a liberal Protestant background, uh, liberal Baptist background, liberal Methodist background, liberal Episcopal background, then this is probably the view that you were uh, ex- uh uh, that you were taught in that church. According to example view, God, Christ's death was not necessary to atone for sin. It doesn't pay for anything. It's not a punishment. There's no relationship at all, in fact, between the salvation of sinners and Christ's death. 
Christ's death was nothing more than an example to us of complete obedience to God, and that example is supposed to inspire people to reform their lives and live as Christ did. You can see by an analysis of that in liberal Protestant theology that it clearly makes the point that man is not inherently sinful because he just needs to be inspired to do better. He does not have that that constitutional defect of sin that has to be solved. He just needs to be inspired to do what is right. As you can see, all that is necessary in this view to solve the sin problem is that man needs to be reformed. He does, there doesn't need to be any punishment. You can make the connection between that and uh, modern penal theory as it goes to dealing with criminals. Criminals need to be reformed, not punished. So there you see a connection between liberal Protestant theology and uh, liberal political and social ideas. The problem with this view is that it focuses on Jesus simply as a man and rejects the deity of Christ. Atonement itself is not necessary. God's righteousness is, in fact, by their view, is really compromised and never satisfied because God is God's really nice, and they, they emphasize the love of God over his righteousness, and uh, they will say that God's love just provides a nice example for us, and his righteousness doesn't need to be satisfied. Furthermore, it distorts the numerous passages of Scripture that emphasize substitution. The fifth view, the fifth erroneous view of the atonement that has been picked up through church history is called the governmental view. This was first advocated by a lawyer during the Reformation by the name of Hugo Grotius. It's sometimes called the Grotian view of the atonement or the governmental view. Grotius lived from 1583 to 1645. This was also the view of Charles Grandison Finney. Finney was a very well-known evangelist during the 1820s and 1830s and 1840s. He was very influential in the abolitionist movement uh, during that time in American history, and he held to this governmental view of the atonement. He did not believe in a substitutionary view of the atonement because Finney did not believe that man was totally depraved. Uh, Finney was really a heretic in many areas, and yet there are many churches and denominations today that encourage their people to read Finney and Finney's uh, lectures on revival and Finney's lectures on theology are still widely read, especially among uh, Pentecostal and charismatic churches. Yet I find that while many of those people believe in substitutionary atonement, they don't realize how heretical Finney actually is in many areas. The governmental view teaches that Christ died to demonstrate the justice of God. That's a positive aspect because it does recognize that God is just and God's righteousness needs to be satisfied. But in this view, the substitutionary aspect of the atonement is denied. It is not substitutionary at all. God forgives sinners without requiring an equivalent payment. Christ upheld the principle of righteousness in God's government by simply making a token payment for sin. God accepted that token payment for sin and then set aside the requirement of the law because Jesus demonstrated in his life that the law was was valid and good. So because God has now set aside the requirement of the law, he is able to forgive sinners because the principle of his government was vindicated. 
basic problem with this is it views God as being subject to change, his promises. He promises one sentence for sin and then reduces it or changes it later on. There is no propitiation of God's character at all. Furthermore, rejects all the passages that emphasize substitution. Now, these are five views, and you can see how as they have influenced, especially the more extreme ones such as the moral influence view, the example view or the governmental view, that if those have influenced theology, they've also had a damaging effect on society and social structures because they all deal with the requirements of law and how those requirements of law are to be met, and they all end up somehow reducing the importance of obedience and full satisfaction of uh, punishment under the law. That always leads to problems because then it allows people to start getting away with criminal activities, getting away with sin, getting away with that which is ultimately destructive. This is the doctrine of substitution. So first of all, we looked at the doctrine of atonement. Second, we looked at the doctrine of substitution. And now the third element is the doctrine of unlimited atonement, the doctrine of unlimited atonement. And the doctrine of unlimited atonement, we see, answer the question, for whom did Christ die? There has been tremendous debate since the Reformation about whether Christ died for just the elect, that is, those who were saved, or whether Christ died for everyone uh, in human history. We believe that Jesus Christ died for everyone in human history and that his substitution was a real substitution. So point number one is the question, did Christ die for only the elect or did he die for all? Point number two, the answer, Christ died for everyone without exception and without distinction. See, sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, I believe Christ died for all without distinction, but not all without exception. In other words, that he died for Jew and Gentile, but he didn't die for every single individual in the human race. That's just one of the ways that, that um, uh, in this discussion, that theological statements uh, muddy the water and confuse the issue rather than making it clear. So we're going to make it clear that Christ died for everyone without exception, every single human being, and without distinction, both Jew and Gentile. Third point, the real problem here has to do with the meaning of the word substitution. Is this substitution real or potential? I remember years ago when I first went to seminary, I was sitting down with a good friend of mine, and he had become quite Calvinistic, quite Reformed in his theology, and he pointed out this problem. He said, if Jesus Christ really died as a substitute, if he truly died as a substitute for unbelievers, then they would be saved. And it shows that there's an inadequate understanding of the nature of substitution and an inadequate understanding of salvation. So often what happens is that the person who believes in limited redemption really emphasizes this aspect of real substitution. There have been three answers historically to this question of whether or not the substitution was real or potential. The first answer is that of limited atonement, that it was a real substitution and only for those who were saved. That was first clearly articulated by Reformed theologians. Reformed theologians are those who are followers 
uh, of John Calvin, even though Calvin was dead by this, by this time. Uh, they were followers of his. They had been influenced in that tradition. At the Synod of Dort, and it was held in Holland as a response to the teaching of the Arminians, the followers of a man, a theologian, a Reformed theologian in many ways. James Arminius, his followers took his theology much further than he did, just as Calvin's followers took his theology much further than he had taught. So in response to the Arminians, they said that atonement was limited and real only for those who were saved. Then in the next generation, there was a man by the name of Moses Amiro, who was also a Calvinist and taught at the Theological Seminary in France at Saumur, and he taught the view of unlimited atonement. And this is also named after him the Amiraldian position of atonement. And it was the idea that atonement is conditional. Christ died for someone on the condition that they accept it. If they don't accept it, then that death is not applied to them. As I'll point out later, that has some problems with it. But that is the standard view that you will find in most theologies when they discuss unlimited atonement. They will say that it is unlimited and that Christ died for everyone, but it's not applied. It's not real. The substitution isn't real unless they accept it. And then there's a third view that unlimited atonement with real substitution. This is the idea that Christ paid for the sins of all, so sin is no longer the issue. And at the great white throne judgment, the issue is not sin, but the issue is a lack of perfect righteousness. And that is the view that we hold here at Preston City Bible Church. Fourth, these are the scriptures that clearly teach an unlimited atonement, that Christ died for all. Hebrews 2.9 states, But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for everyone, as a substitute for everyone, not just for a few. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Once again, he died for all. 2 Corinthians 5:14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. That would seem to indicate that all actually died in some sense on the cross, that that substitution is real, not just hypothetical or potential. Verse 15. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. 1 Timothy 2, 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony born at the proper time. And then I think 1 Timothy 4.10 and 2 Peter 2.1 are some of the strongest verses. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So he's the Savior of all, but especially of believers, indicating those believers are a special class, uh, but he died for all. Second Peter 2.1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. 
bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, the, the person who believes in limited atonement has a real problem here. He's on the horns of a dilemma because he might try to argue that the false prophets here were really believers who had gone into heresy. But according to the fifth point of TULIP, the, the five points of Calvinism, uh, if you're a genuine believer, you're not going to fall away into permanent heresy. So the fifth point means that in, in Calvinism means that these false prophets couldn't be viewed as believers at all, so that uh, they would have to be unbelievers. I think the text indicates that they are unbelievers and that Jesus bought them. He died for them. He His redemption extended to them. And then we have 1 John 2.2 2 that states that he is the propitiation for all mankind. So all these verses taken together indicate that the atonement extends to everyone in the human race. Now, point number five, to go back to the substitutionary problem, the problem with unlimited atonement is that it is often stated in such a way that it conflicts with the concept of real substitution. If Jesus really died for the sins of everyone, then what is the unbeliever condemned for? Is he condemned for sin or is he condemned for something else? Under limited atonement, Christ died for a certain number of people. So those he didn't die for the judgment, at the great white throne judgment are going to end up in the lake of fire. But in limited atonement, excuse me, in unlimited atonement, you can go to the unbeliever after the great white throne judgment and you can inquire of him, for what are you being punished? And he will say, I am being punished for my sin. Well, that means that Christ didn't actually die for those sins. So unlimited atonement has some weaknesses in it. Even though they do believe that Christ died for all, they often express that or define it in the following way. This I got this st- statement out of the Moody Handbook of Theology. The doctrine of unlimited atonement, as understood by evangelicals, means that Christ died for every person, but his death is effective only in those who believe the gospel. Now, that is a statement that some limited atonement people can agree with. They would believe it is only effective for those who believe the gospel because that's the only ones for whom he effectively died. That Christ's death is theoretically broad enough to cover everyone, but it's actual only for those who are saved. Now, our position is that it's a real substitution that at the time that a person is in the lake of fire and we ask him, why are you being punished? He will not say, because Christ didn't pay for my sins. He said, Christ paid for my sins, but I didn't accept it. Therefore, when I got to the great white throne judgment, I was standing there on the basis of my own works, and my own works weren't good enough. My own works couldn't solve the problem. And because my own works didn't give me perfect righteousness, God could not allow me to enter into heaven. And so I came under the condemnation of God's justice. So that is the point that that unlimited atonement must have a real substitutionary element to it, and it means that the sins are paid for, but the issue at the at the great white throne judgment is not sin, it is righteousness, and the unbeliever lacks the perfect righteousness of Christ. We will see the importance of that when we come back in a couple of weeks and look at the doctrine of imputation and justification. Now, next week, we'll look at the next problem that is solved by the doctrine of redemption. So we'll come back and look at redemption next Wednesday night with our heads bowed 
and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, for this opportunity to fully understand the nature of the atonement and its solution for the sin problem. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.